Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you for the freedom to get together and to worship you and to learn more about your word. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, for the Kramitz family today as we've lost Jim. Um, he went to be home with you, Lord. We thank you for him. We thank you what you did in his life. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. We pray now, Lord, for Bob's sermon, that we would think well upon the text and also the Sunday school today, that you'd help us to be people that are conformed to your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be looking at one verse today, and we're going to try to really get this verse down. This is a verse that people ask me more often than any other about how is it possible that the day of the Lord can be an imminent event in light of the fact that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, seems to indicate that the apostasy and the Antichrist must come first. And what I'm going to show you is that there are some issues with this passage that are somewhat complex, but I believe that we can make them simple so that every single believer can understand what the text is saying. And we'll see, in fact, that there is no precursor prior to the day of the Lord once this passage is properly understood. How many know that in every every profession, you might end up having some form of groupthink? Um, you have it with doctors, you have it with lawyers, you have it with airline pilots, I know. Um, you have it even in scholarship and those who translate the Bible. And so I'm not trying to take away our English Bibles. I never want to denigrate them. They're, by and large, 99.9% of the time, excellent translations. But I'll be showing you a clear example today of a translation issue, which I think, just logically, you'll see to your own satisfaction, needs to be addressed. And so that's what we'll be dealing with. Now, why is 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 3 so important? Some years ago, in 1996, there was a man named Robert Gundry. He's a post-tribulationalist. He wrote a book called First the Antichrist. And the idea is that the church's blessed hope is not to see Christ first, but to see Antichrist persevere and then one day see Christ. And he used 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3, to prove his point. Um, Alan Kirshner, probably the most abled scholar of the pre-wrath movement uses 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3, to prove his version of eschatology. Um, We have Robert Van Campen, who died and went to be with the Lord, who was also a pre-wrath. There are so many others that have used this passage. So what I'm going to show you, though, is that there are some big issues. And the issues with this text is that, number one, if you and I believe that 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3, teaches that the Antichrist comes first, I believe we have a contradiction in Scripture. And, of course, there are no contradictions in the Scripture. And so it makes us go back to the drawing board and say, hey, what are we getting wrong? Let me explain the issue. Do you remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, now as to the times and the epochs. Now, stop there for just a moment. Notice he's talking about timing. Remember, two verses earlier, what's he talking about? The rapture. So I want you to see that because the rapture is connected to the day of the Lord. Why? Because it's the first thing within it. And by the way, that's not just the pre-tribulationalists who believe that. The pre-wrath movement believes that as well. They just push the rapture later in the 70th week, and therefore the day of the Lord starts later. But everyone should see the connection between the day of the Lord and the rapture. So he says, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, Verse 2, he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now stop there for just a moment. Again, that phrase, just like a thief in the night, the term thief, kleptase that's being used there. Remember, there's two terms for thief or robber in the Greek New Testament. It can be lastase or it could be kleptase. Lastase is a robber who uses force to get what he wants. He'll beat you over the head with a club and takes your stuff. That's lastase. But the kleptase, where we get our term kleptomania, that is the thief that uses stealth to get what he wants. That's the term that's being used here. So what's being accentuated, let me pull up my pointer. What's being accentuated with this idea of thief is that, that of suddenness, that there's no warning. What kind of thief gives you a precursor as to when he's going to commit his dastardly deed? Well, they don't. And that's the whole point. Now, I want you to see in verse 3, that now Paul doubles down on this idea of suddenness without any warning. 
He says, while they are saying peace and safety, stop there. This is the same peace and safety that is removed according to the second seal in Revelation chapter 6. So the beginning of the 70th week. So they can't be saying this after the 70th week begins. So this must be prior to the 70th week. They have peace and safety. Then what happens? Destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So notice, not only do we have a thief that relies on stealth with no precursor, but the term suddenly like labor pains. And so the idea then is that the day of the Lord comes suddenly. There's nothing to tip you off. There's no warning. But liberal scholars will say, aha, we either have two different authors to First and Second Thessalonians or Paul was teaching a contradiction or the Bible has contradictions. There's various arguments they will use. And the reason for that is notice what it says in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3 regarding the day of the Lord. Now Paul says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let, now notice verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now notice verse 3 seems to imply that there must be something that occurs first prior to the day of the Lord. And so many people in the pre-wrath, the post-trib camp, and even liberal scholars, and by the way, as I, I use liberal scholars, I'm not trying to slander the pre-wrath and the post-tribulationalists. They believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I think they're fellow believers in Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that liberal scholars, they will take this passage and they will say, hey, Paul here is saying that there must be something that occurs prior to the day of the Lord, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. Yes, back there, Ron. Oh, sorry, Brian, would you mind running the mic to him? See if I if I forget what I was going to ask you when I got up here. No, that's um, fine. So, would it, is it safe to say that the pre-rathers and the post-trib rapture people are? Do they see the difference between the church and Israel as a rule, as opposed to the the libs who who say Israel's gone? Yeah, and you know some do. Um, I, I you know it's funny they will take the Olivet discourse like the pre-rath movement. I'm more familiar with their arguments. And they will say that unless the Olivet Discourse, for example, has to do with the church age, at least parts of it, then it has no significance to the church. Um, what I would do is disagree and say, no, the signs are in the 70th week. But the reason that passage is significant to us as the church is because it shows us all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. So it's, the, the question really, Ron, is how does that passage apply? So I think if you ask a pre-rather, do you see a distinction between Israel and the church? They'll say yes. So, and we'll say the same thing. But where we would disagree is just on the significance of some of the passages, like the Olivet Discourse. Does that help? So we're probably on the, if we were going to take a theological test, we'd both answer that question, distinction between the church and Israel. But how that manifests itself in various texts would be something we would disagree. Yeah. Very good question. So what I want you to see then is what they're banking on for this idea of a contradiction. That is the liberal scholars, not necessarily the, the post-tribulationalist, but they see a contradiction, the liberal scholars, because something must happen first prior to the day of the Lord. So how can you have a day of the Lord that comes without warning and then the day of the Lord that comes with a warning? You can't have a precursor and no precursor at the same time and in the same relationship. So this is what puzzled me for years. There was a man who wrote an article. It's called Imminence in the New Testament. It was written by a scholar named Robert Thomas. I read this back in 2007, and it revolutionized my understanding of this text. I did my own studies, and I came to my own conclusion that this is probably the best reading. So what I'm going to do is resolve this issue, and what I will show you, just to kind of show my conclusion at the beginning, is that at the end of the day, where it says, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. What I will prove to you is this apostasy is the first thing within the 70th week. It does not precede the 70th week. Let me say that again. The apostasy is the first thing within the 70th week. 
So think of brackets. It's the first thing within it. It does not precede the 70th week. That's what I'm going to be proving to you. Now, what does 2 Thessalonians teach? Remember what the issue was at Thessalonica. The big issue for them in 2 Thessalonians is they believed because they were living under such great persecution that they must have been living during the day of the Lord. And there were false teachers who were claiming that the apostles were saying they were in the day of the Lord. Well, what's the implication if you're living in the day of the Lord? You've missed the rapture. Okay, so a lot of people will say, well, why didn't Paul say, hey, were you raptured? Therefore, if you weren't raptured, you didn't miss the day of the Lord. The reason Paul doesn't answer that is what's, it's called a tautology. So, for example, if my son says, hey, Dad, why does the sky look blue? And I say, well, because it's blue. I've added nothing to the argument. All I've done is given a tautology. Um, why did the umpire say that the runner was out? Because he thought he was out. It adds nothing to the discussion. If Paul said, of course you didn't miss the rapture, because you didn't miss the rapture. Well, it's not much of an argument, is it? So what he does is he says, hey, the first thing within the day of the Lord is the apostasy and the man of lawlessness being revealed. Has that happened? No, therefore you can't be in the the day of the Lord. That's how he's going to answer it. So that's the issue. So I want you to turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 8. And the purpose of turning to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 through 8, is to see just what kind of persecution that the people of Thessalonica were undergoing, that they were under. I want you to see evidence in the text itself that that was their issue. They were undergoing very severe persecution. So says the Apostle Paul. So again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Let's begin in verse 3. Notice here Paul begins by giving thanks for their faith. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith, in the midst of all your persecutions, that's diagmois, and afflictions, philipsis, which you endure. Now stop there. Notice that term, afflictions. That's the term philipsis in the Greek. It's the same term that we have for tribulation. So they were undergoing great tribulation here and now. Not the tribulation, but they're undergoing persecution. That's the idea. So verse 5, it says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now stop there. Notice that reversal in verse 6. God is going to put into affliction those who are afflicting Christians. That's the term philipsis again. So when does that happen? Well, that happens one day in the 70th week. God is going to do that. He's going to make a reversal. Those who are persecuting us will be the ones who suffer. That's what happens in the 70th week of Daniel. So that's what he's promising, but it's still in the future. Verse 7, he says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, what is the worry amongst the people at Thessalonica? That they were undergoing the day of the Lord. They were undergoing such severe persecution. So, false teachers picked up on that. And they said, brothers and sisters, the reason you're suffering is because you are in the day of the Lord. Well, that set in a panic. And they thought, well, hey, we must have missed the rapture. So, yes, Brian. Uh I want to be clear, and and we've talked about this, but I was never clear from our discussion. And there's another view uh, on the word apostasy. Uh, What's the Greek word? Yeah, apostasia. Apostasia. Okay. Uh, There's uh, another belief about this word is that numerous times in the New Testament, that word is also used for a person going from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And uh, the context 
of it being used here, the other argument would be is that in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, they're mainly, the, the context is the rapture, okay? But then all of a sudden we come to that verse that uses the apostasy, and we, we change it to talking about the, the, the falling away of the faith, the apostasy. Yep. So my question is, why do we change over uh, uh, from the, the context of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and, and all of a sudden we, we go there? Yeah, I'll, I'll be talking about that. I'll be talking about I don't think that's the best view, the best argument that we have, and I'll show you why. There's, there's other issues at stake that are more important. Um, the term apostasy, I believe, does mean, when it's used, with, especially with a definite article here, it's not just an apostasy, it's the apostasy, this worldwide revolt against God and his rule. And what I'll show you is the best evidence suggests that's how it's being used here. But what I'm going to show you is that the issue is one of the translation, and that'll become very clear here. You're going to see a sleight of hand that unwittingly the translators are doing in the Bible. And when you see it, you'll say, why are they doing it? And I think it's groupthink. And I'm going to show you that, so I'm, bear I'm with me. I'm looking forward to hearing it, but yeah. also hasn't there always been apostasy? Um, yes, but th- that's what's significant about the apostasy. Okay. And so the apostasy is, think about the church is gone, so it can't be referring to the church. So whose revolt is it? It's all of humankind. And what I think, if you all want to write down a verse that really summarizes what the apostasy is like, write, jot down, and I'll read it later, write Psalm 2, verses 1 through 7. Yeah, Scott. The raising of the borders, is it? it really will be, yeah. It's where you reject Christ. Um, they take, the world takes its stand against the Lord and his anointed. That happened in David's day. The ultimate time will come when they give their allegiance to Antichrist rather than Christ. And so, and so that's what the great apostasy is. And I'll show you why I think it makes sense in light of the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. So what I'm going to do is I want to put up here then 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. And I want you to see what Paul was trying to do. He's trying to quench the fears that they were living in the day of the Lord. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So stop there. Notice there was someone more than likely claiming apostolic authority that was saying this persecution you people in Thessalonica are going through is evidence that you're in the day of the Lord. So either there was false teachers saying that they were apostles or they were signing letters with the names of the apostles. But that was the argument. So notice he says, he goes on to say here, that it can't be, it's not from us, right, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The first thing I want to look at is this phrase, has come. That's a translation of a verb, anesteken. Anesteken is always used in significant theological context as a perfect passive uh, participle. Excuse me, a perfect... Um, I think it's actually active participle. Now, I'm going to show you why that's important. What I think it should be rendered as not has come, but is present. And I'm going to labor that point, because if we don't see this phrase rendered correctly, we won't get it. This has come should be rendered is present. And I'm going to show you every example in the New Testament. How many examples? Every one outside of 2 Thessalonians 2. And I'll prove to you it should be rendered is present. And so that's the idea. So let me begin. Let's begin in Romans 8.38. Romans 8.38. Remember, this is nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, etc., etc. Well, notice the phrase, things present. Perfect, active, participle of anesthetic. Okay? So would it make sense to say, nor things that have come. Well, you could say it that way, but it certainly is awkward, right? Isn't it better to say things present, nor things to come? Because the idea is something is either present, or it's coming, or it has come. It's either past, present, or future. So Paul here is using that same verb that we just saw for things present. Nothing, things that had come, things that are, or things that will come, can separate you from the love of Christ. So the term is present. Let's look at another example. 1 Corinthians 3.22. 
Here Paul says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present, anestekin, or things to come, all things belong to you. Again, the term is rendered how? Present. Okay, anestekin. Again, perfect active participle. Let me show you another example. 1 Corinthians 7.26. I think then that it is that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. The term present there, perfect, active, participle, anestekin. Should it be rendered? Think of it. I think then that it is good in view of the has come distress. No, it's the present distress. Okay, so what I'm trying to show you is why are we rendering 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, has come. Okay, when every time it's rendered present in our Bibles, right? Now, what present distress was Paul talking about? The present distress that I think Paul was talking about was that they were dying because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. I think that may be the present distress that he was referring to. Remember, according to 1 Corinthians 11, the abuse of the Lord's Supper caused some to fall asleep. And that was a distress because they were abusing fellow believers. That was a very, what you would say in culture today, an existential threat. So that may be the present distress that he's referring to. All right, let me show you another example. Galatians 1.4, talking about Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Again, should we render this from this has come evil age? As the Second Thessalonians 2, 2 translates the verse in the NASB? Or should it be the present evil age? Well, I think it's obvious it's present. Okay, let me give you one more. I'm showing you it's all over the Bible, always rendered how many? How many? Or how should it be rendered? Present. Hebrews 9, 9. He says, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Would it make sense to say which is a symbol for the has come time? No, it's the present time. So what I want to do is I'm going to show you, we've looked at every example of that verb or participle used outside of 2 Thessalonians 2, and how many times is it rendered present? Every time. Every single time. So here's what I would recommend. We take that to 2 Thessalonians 2, and remember their threat, what they thought was happening was the day of the Lord is literally present. Does everyone see that? That's the way it should be rendered. What did they believe? They were in the day of the Lord. So again, if Paul says, well, you can't be in the day of the Lord because you, you didn't miss the rapture, well, that's what they believed that they missed. So if they said, hey, we fear that we're in the day of the Lord, we missed the rapture, he can't say, well, no, that couldn't happen because you didn't miss the rapture. Again, it's like my son saying, why is the sky blue? Well, son, because it looks blue. I've added nothing. Paul would add nothing to the argument. So what he's going to show is what's the first thing within the 70th week? He's going to show us the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. And if that hasn't happened, you can't be inside the day of the Lord. That's the idea. So notice he says, let no one in any way deceive you like the false teachers were, for it will not come. Now, notice this is italicized. Does everyone see the italics there? Can you see it in the screen? Yeah. Everyone's, do you know why it's italicized? Because it's not in the Greek New Testament. It has to be supplied by the translator. Okay, and this is where I'm saying the group think has come in. Why are we taking a present tense issue and through translators adding a it will not come, a future tense oriented problem? Okay, are you with me? Because again, this is, I'm not arguing about the scripture here. I'm arguing about the translators who have to supply. This is called an ellipsis. So Paul is using an argument where he's assuming you as the translator are accurately putting in the ellipsis accurate logical conclusions. So the way it should be rendered is not let no one in any way deceive you for it is not present unless the apostasy first and then the man of lawlessness. Does everyone, is everyone with me? Why are we going in the English translations? And by the way, there are some obscure translations. The Wymouth, there's a Darby translation. There's others out there that they do see the connection. They get this right. But our ESVs or NASBs, I think they've bought into groupthink. They're going from a present tense issue to a future tense issue. The way I think this should be rendered is let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not present. You are not in it. That's the issue. 
And so because that's the issue, it shows us that what Paul is going to give us is not something that precedes the day of the Lord, but the first things within the day of the Lord. Are you with me? So that was the first revolutionary thing. When I saw Robert Thomas point that out, and I started looking, I looked at the Greek text, and over and over, I'm like, yeah, you're right, it has to be supplied. Then why are we switching, as the English translators are, from the present to the future? It doesn't make any sense logically. Okay, so that's the first issue. Now, what I want to do is talk about apodosis and apodosis, and don't glaze over, this is very simple. In logic, we talk about apodosis as simply an if statement, a conditional the apodosis is a then. If the Vikings have a stout defense, then they might go to the playoffs. Right? So that would be a conditional statement. The condition, prodosis, is the if. The apodosis is the then. You're going to see that in 2 Thessalonians 2. And what I'm showing you is that the apodosis has been messed up. That's what's happened is the English translators messed up on the assumed apodosis. So let's read it again. Now I'm going to put in my own translation here of present. Notice it says that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is present. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come. Now I haven't fixed that yet unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, what I want you to see is that, notice in blue, does everyone see the unless? That's the condition. It's just like an if. So anytime you see a conditional clause, you know that's the prodosis. So what I want you to see is, notice the prodosis comes last, and the apodosis is thrown forward. Does everyone see that? Now, why would that rascal, the Apostle Paul, do that? Because he's assuming you know the apodosis. You have to supply that. That's what we have to supply is the apodosis, the then. So it can literally be rendered this way. Unless the apostasy comes first within the day of the Lord and the man of lawlessness is revealed, then it is not present. Does that make sense? It's not present. Why? Because those are the first things within it. All right? So the question we have to ask ourselves is what is wrong with the implied apodosis? Again, apodosis is red. That's what's right here. What's wrong with it is that this is a future tense, this is present tense issue. And again, this is the error that I believe the English translators are making. All right? Now, what I want to do is I want to read this backwards again. I want you to read this. Let's read it this way. If, let's use an if then. If the apostasy does not come first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, then it is not present. That would be another way of rendering it. Okay, does everyone see that? Now, one of the questions I want to wrestle with is this term apostasy. Brian did a very good job of showing us one of the responses by pre-tribulational scholars with the term apostasy. As some, like this Andy Woods will claim, apostasy means a departure. So he sees this as a reference to the departure of believers like the rapture. I, I don't buy that um, for myself, I think that there's a better explanation here. And the reason why I don't believe that the apostasy here is that is because in the context of how it's used in the New Testament, apostasy is always a revolt against God. It's not a physical departure as much as it is a spiritual and a, what you might say, a political departure. So it's a mental one, not necessarily a physical one. Now, it manifests itself physically when the whole world unites against Christ and his believers. But what I'm saying is it's not a physical departure. Let me give you some examples. Let's turn our Bibles to Jeremiah 2.19. I'll show you in the Old Testament how apostasy is used in the Septuagint. Let's start in Jeremiah 2.19. And this is something that will be rectified in the future day of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19 Here's where God is rebuking Israel. Why does he rebuke them? He says, your own wickedness will correct you and your apostasies, there's our term, apostasia in the Greek Septuagint, your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord of 
the Lord God of hosts. So notice there, the apostasies is a religious one, a defection from the true God to false gods, to idolatry. Uh, let me show you another example. Let's look at Luke 8.13. Luke 8.13. Here's Jesus talking about the different types of soil. And you'll see him use apostasy. Luke 8.13. I'll give you time to turn to it. Luke 8.13. Jesus says, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, apostasia. They fall away. Okay, so again, are they falling away physically? Are they, are, is that the issue? Is Jesus saying, hey, you know what? They're walking away physically. They went from point A to point B. No, he's talking about a spiritual defection. They went from the true living God believing in Christ it seemed that they really did believe, but they really never did. And the evidence is that they departed. They went into idolatry. Um, yeah, Brian. You mentioned Andy Wood. Yeah. In his writings, he's given examples where it is a physical. From yeah, there are some. Oh, there are some. Okay. Yeah. Um, but what I'm showing you, though, is the vast majority of them in the New Testament are a spiritual defection. Okay. And I'll show you why that makes better sense in the context of Second Thessalonians, because it leads immediately to what? To the Antichrist mm-hmm. and his revelation. What do you see in the beginning of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 5? Antichrist comes. Revelation 6, verse 1, Antichrist comes. So the apostasy is the defection of the world spiritually where they give their allegiance to Antichrist rather than Christ. And it has to do with government that Bob and I have talked about where God has ordained multiple governments. Mm -hmm. They're going to defect from that rule, right? They're going to defect from that and they're going to give their allegiance to whom? The Antichrist. Antichrist. Yeah, no, um, um, I hate to belabor this. Yeah. Okay. People who have the different view like Andy... Yeah. Okay, and, and there are a lot of them. Okay, see, they're not saying, they're saying that first comes the apostasia, okay, yeah. which they're saying is the rapture, and then comes the revealing. Okay, yeah. but they're in agreement with what you're saying, that it's all within the 70th exactly. week. There's no, there's no uh, difference in that view. Exactly, that's exactly right. What I'm just going to show you, though, is we don't, I think if you took that apostasia to a debate, you'd just be crushed. I think it's a weak argument. Yeah. So what I'm going to show you is a better, I'm going to show you a better understanding and something that you could use to prove your point that I think is just airtight. That's what I'm going to do. So what I'm trying to do is build the case that don't go to apostasy as the answer. That's my whole point. Let me, um, now I'm not going to turn to any more passages. We can go on and on about the apostasia, but I want you to turn to, to Psalm 2, 1 through 7. And the reason I want you to turn there is this is a good description of what the apostasy will look like. This happened in David's day where the nations took their stand against David who was the Lord's anointed. Now remember, David is in a sense a lesser Messiah. Or let's put it this way, Jesus is the greater David. So some things that happen to David are foreshadowing of what will one day be true of the ultimate David, the greater David, the Messiah. And one thing that we see in Psalm 2 is that the nations were trying to upheave or, let's say, uh, overthrow the anointed that was in Jerusalem. Psalm 2, 1 through 7, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Stop there. Notice the idea is they will not allow God to rule over them. Do you know what Paul calls the Antichrist in the Second Thessalonians 2? Let's look at it. Notice he calls him the man of what? Lawlessness. Did God ordain in both Deuteronomy 32 and according to Acts chapter 17 multiple governments? So when the world tries to rebuild Babylon again and give all of their allegiance to the Antichrist and you have a one-world government, is that then not one of the greatest acts of lawlessness? And that's why I think the apostasy, it's not just an apostasy, it's the apostasy. This worldwide revolt against God and his rule. Now, why is that going to be so particularly 
easy to do because all the Christians are gone. All the Christians are gone. Right? They're raptured. They're gone. And so now the world is really unfettered. Think about all the positions of authority that Christians even still have today. I know it's getting smaller and smaller, but they'll be completely let loose. And they'll be able to do anything they want. So I think that Psalm 2, 1 through 7 is really a good way of suggesting this is what the future apostasy looks like. Um, Listen to what it goes on to say, verse 3, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Now stop there. When does he actually do that? In the day of the Lord. He'll terrify them. In fact, that's one of the terms that's used over and over for those who experience his wrath in the 70th week. They're terrified. In fact, remember the sixth seal, they say, may the rocks fall upon us to hide us from the, what, the wrath of the Lamb. For his wrath, the day of his wrath has come, they say. Right? It says, notice verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this is applied to Christ at his ascension, resurrection. It's applied to David a thousand years earlier. But ultimately, it will apply again as Christ reigns over the earth. So, my point in saying this is if you want a good description of what the apostasy looks like, Psalm 2, 1 through 7 is a very good description. It's this lawlessness that comes. Now, that lawlessness then yields itself to what? The the Antichrist. The Antichrist, because the world gives the Antichrist their allegiance, not the Christ who rules and truly reigns. All right? Yeah, Brian. I won't talk about the apostasy. (laughs) But people who believe that tornadoes and this catastrophe, and now I'm going to throw in lawlessness because we're living right now in an age where we see in major cities, even our own, where carjackings, people getting beat up old ladies, and all this lawlessness, everybody out on the street, so on and so forth. They would say, well, look, look at all this is happening. But the problem with that is, I believe, is that People don't realize the extent of lawlessness that man can actually do. We, right. we think robbing stores and looting and burning, we think that's lawlessness, which it is, mm-hmm. but, but there's such a higher degree of lawlessness that we can't Amen. even imagine. Well said. It's an order of magnitude in the day of the Lord. And it's to the point where, remember at the fourth seal, you have sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Those four things that were used as God's wrath upon Israel... And according to Ezekiel 14, 19 through 21, they'll be poured upon the Gentile world. And I want you to think about that last one, wild beast, sword, famine, pestilence, wild beast. Why are wild beasts mentioned? Because in the normal created order, mankind is given dominion. But so broken down is the created order through lawlessness and warfare that your society is just so decimated that all of a sudden a man is dragged down the street by a bear. A little baby's being gnawed on by some wolves. And all of a sudden, this isn't the right, this isn't, this isn't right. The, the whole dominion that God has given to humanity over the animals is going to be reversed. And it's that kind of lawlessness um, that leads to that kind of uh, societal breakdown. So you're right, it's, it's something that we've never seen at that magnitude where you lose a quarter of the Earth's population. Again, World War II, worst war ever, we lost 3% of the world's population. At the fourth seal, you've lost a quarter of the earth. That's eight times worse. So whatever we've experienced thus far on the planet, in the opening wars of the 70th week of Daniel, it's going to be eight times worse in magnitude, If just doing simple math. So yeah, it's going to be very bad indeed. Now, let me show you what that poor translation, remember I talked about the rendering from the present to the future? Let me show you what that leads to. The poor translation is that the apostasy and the Antichrist come before the 70th week. That the apostasy and Antichrist come prior. But what I'm going to show you is that the better understanding, when we get our translation right, is that the apostasy and the Antichrist are the first thing within the 70th week. So think of this bracket, the beginning of the 70th week. That bracket is the end. What Paul is actually teaching is that the apostasy comes first, 
First for what? Well, prior to the Antichrist. That's the idea. And then that is the first thing within what? The 70th week. Now, what I'm gonna, how I'm going to prove this, and this, I think this is far better than using the apostasy argument that Andy Woods has, is we're going to look at two constructions in the Greek that are really identical to what we have in 2 Thessalonians 2. And so I'm going to show you the first one, and I'll prove to you that, again, what we're going to prove is that the apostasy and the Antichrist are the first thing within the 70th week of Daniel. They do not precede the 70th week. And I'm going to show you two other examples that are much like this. Let's look at the first one, Mark 3.27. Remember Mark 3.27, this is where the scribes had accused Jesus of casting out Satan by the power of Satan. Remember they said he was infused with Beelzebul, right? So what Jesus argues is, well, wait a minute, a house divided cannot stand. And then he talks about how the plundering of the strong man's house cannot occur unless he is first bound. So let's look at this argument that Jesus makes. And it's the same construction in the Greek that we have Paul using in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3. Notice Mark 3, 27. Jesus says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the binding of the strong man does not precede the entering and plundering, but it is the first thing within it. So think about someone being arrested for breaking and entering. If they break and they enter and they plunder, the first thing that they must do within that process to steal all of the possessions is to bind the man of the house. That's what Jesus is describing. So what I'm claiming is that clearly in this construction, the binding of the strong man does not occur prior to the entering. After all, how does he get to the strong man? Is the strong man on the outside of the house? I don't think that that's the depiction. I think the depiction is that the binding of the strong man is the first thing within this process of entering and plundering. In the same way, the apostasy in the man of lawlessness is the first thing within the 70th week. It does not proceed. Yeah, Brian. Now, a lot of false teachers, they use this verse for back to our binding and loosing. Okay, they'll say for like these people that have the big hotel deals and yeah. they're going to they're gonna, uh, 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 get demons out of people and so on and so forth. They'll say, well, well we have to bind Satan, okay? And then we can go in and do what we're going to do. But there's only one person that's strong enough to, to do that, and that's Jesus Christ. So, Amen. That's what they'll use. They'll use that as a uh, false assumption. That's right. So, very good. Um, Let's look at this construction again. Notice the conditional language. No one can enter the strong man's house, but notice he says, and plunder his property. So, notice the entering would be here, and the plundering is here. Okay? Now, is the binding of the strong man prior to the entering, or is it the first thing within the entering? I think it's the first thing within. That's how I would render it. Where's the, where's the strong man? Well, he's in the house, I think, is the implication. So in other words, Jesus isn't talking about the binding happens prior to the whole procedure, but rather it's the first thing within it. Does that make sense? That's the same argument that Paul is making. Let me back up. Let's back up to here. Notice where it says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The first there can either refer to the the apostasy comes first prior to the lawlessness one revealed, or it can refer to first prior to the day of the Lord. But notice in the closest proximity, the term proton is in closer proximity to the man of lawlessness. So in other words, it's the apostasy that comes first, then the man of lawlessness. Those are the first thing within the 70th week. So the first doesn't say the apostasy comes before the day of the Lord. It says it comes prior to what? The man of lawlessness being revealed. Well, that makes sense because the world revolts and they give their allegiance to the Antichrist. Does that make sense? So we have the same thing in Mark 3.27, where again, we have the entering here. And we have the plundering, we have that here. 
And the first thing within the process is the binding of the strong man. If you don't do that, you can't plunder. That's the point. Jesus isn't saying he can't enter, ultimately, because he adds the and plunder. The issue is plunder. How do you plunder? Well, you have to bind the strong man. The whole point is in Christ's work, Satan will be bound. Now, it happens ultimately when he's thrown into the lake of fire. But the, the point is, in Christ's work, in the Messiah, the, the power of Satan goes down, down, and down. So think about at the cross when Jesus dies, all of the accusations and slander that are launched against us, don't, they don't hold. That's one of the points that Paul makes in Colossians 2, that it was nailed to the cross, the accusations against us, right? But from there, is Satan loosed? Sure, he's able to deceive the nations even after the millennial kingdom. He brings a final battle of Gog and Magog, Revelation chapter 20. But then what happens to him? Then he's thrown in the lake of fire forever. So he's bound temporarily during the millennial kingdom, but then he's bound forever in the lake of fire. So from the time of Christ's cross, Satan goes down, down, and down. He's being bound. And that's the point is Jesus, it's his work. He's the Messiah who binds the strong man. So the point is, that's how he's plundered. Satan's being plundered by holding people in derision against the Lord, holding them in blindness. And the Lord is the one who's plundering them. That's the idea. But again, the, pl- the binding of the strong man occurs first. Let me show you another one. This is the only other construction that's identical to that one and also... To 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3. Again, same language, same conditional structure, same proton, same everything is used in the Greek. John 7, 51. Now remember, this is where Nicodemus the Pharisee was standing up for Jesus because the religious leaders accused those who followed him as those who didn't know the law. So Nicodemus, who ends up being a believer, he pulls a sneaky one on him. He says, well, hey, if you know the law so well, doesn't the law say that you have to first in the judicial process, hear from the defendant before you launch an allegation? In other words, if you know the law so well, you people are accusing everyone else of not knowing the law, then why don't you do what the law says? You first hear the one that you're accusing, the defendant, before you make your allegation. So listen to what he says. John 7, 51, this is Nicodemus. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now, Does the hearing from the defendant precede the judicial process? Or is it the first thing within the judicial process? Well, I think it's clearly the latter. The judicial process of judging a man includes what? First hearing him. The first thing within the event of the judicial process is hearing the defendant. Okay? So the judicial process, you don't have the hearing of the defendant, and then you have the judicial process. It's the first thing within it. You don't have the entering and the plundering, but prior to that, you have the binding of the strong man. No, the first thing within the entering and plundering is the binding of the strong man. These are the only constructions in the entire Greek New Testament that are synonymous with 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3. Let me back up. Why is it important? Well, oh, you know what? I don't have to back up. Sorry, I forgot my own PowerPoint. I've got it in the neck. Let's put it together. I've got a putting it together page. All right. Now, I've used, this is the Eric Dalma translation. where I've, It's all the same from the NASB, except I've just changed two things to show the logic. Here's the logic. Paul said that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is what? Is what? Present. Present not has come. It's always used, remember, anestiken, present. So they thought they were in it. So he's telling them that's their worry, that they thought that they were in the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord is present. Now, how does he refute that? Let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not present. Right? That's the way it should be rendered if we're logically consistent. Unless what? The apostasy comes first. First before what? Well, before the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So the apostasy is the first thing within the 70th week. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed because obviously the world gives allegiance to him and you proceed through the rest of the 70th week. Does that make sense? Now, why is that important? Because now, here's what we have. Let me go back. This is the, think of this bracket. Again, I'm trying to relate it to the brackets I've used for the Mark 3.27 and the John 7.51. Everyone with me? 
the brackets here is the entirety of the 70th week from here to here, beginning the end. So I'm talking about the 70th week as a whole process. It begins with the apostasy and the Antichrist. Now, as I'm going to show you, this makes sense because at the Olivet Discourse, Jesus refers to the Antichrist coming on the scene, the beginning of the 70th week. Revelation chapter 6, what's the first thing? The first seal, the Antichrist comes on the scene. So that would seem to make sense in what Paul is saying. The first thing within is the apostasy that gives rise to the Antichrist. Now, why is this particularly important in light of 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3? Well, now there's no discrepancy. Because now when Paul says, remember verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Aha, we can tell the liberal scholars there's no contradiction. The 70th week comes like a thief because there's nothing that precedes it. The apostasy and the man of lawlessness being revealed are the first thing within, but it doesn't precede. So now you don't have a contradiction between 1 Thessalonians 5.2 and 2 Thessalonians 2.3. And so the liberal scholars now no longer have a leg to stand on once we get our, our translation correct and our interpretation. Is everyone with me? What's more, remember I said not only does the thief, remember two terms for thief, lastes, the thief that uses force, that's never what Jesus or Paul uses when it comes to the day of the Lord. The thief that's used here is kleptes. Again, a kleptes uses stealth to get what they want. Does a, does a thief give you a precursor prior to their coming? No. No, notice again in verse 3, the day of the Lord comes suddenly. All right, is there any warning for suddenly? No. Uh, labor pains. I like to tell the story. My wife and I were watching Bill Cosby. This is prior to his legal trouble, by the way. So just a full disclosure for the tape. But we love Bill Cosby. We're watching him one night, and um, her water broke. She was pregnant. And it happened suddenly. And I didn't know how all of this worked. I said, put that back in. <laughs> He's five and a half weeks early. We can't do that. But the point is, it was sudden. There was no warning. Nothing said, hey, water about to break right here. It happened. There was nothing to tip us off. And I always think about that in a relationship. The labor pains. Uh, Jim Palmer, former elder, he moved away. He's now closer to his grandkids in Racine, Wisconsin. He always said, Eric, the church age is the discomforts of the pregnancy, but it's not the labor pains. That's exactly right. He had his eschatology down. Why? Because it's the 70th week is the labor pains. And the conception in the scripture is they begin to get worse and worse and worse until what's born, the messianic age at the end where Christ comes and he sets up his millennial kingdom. That's the conception that the apostolic writers had. And so the idea then is that these labor pains come without warning, just like the thief. And if we are correct, and I think we are with our translation, this maintains that. Whereas if you have the pre-wrath view, the post-trib view, or the liberal view, then you have a contradiction because you have something that precedes the day of the Lord. And therefore, the day of the Lord really doesn't come like a thief. Liberal scholars have used that. They say, hey, there must be two different writers of First and Second Thessalonians because in First Thessalonians, Paul says that there's no warning for the day of the Lord. But in Second Thessalonians 2, he says, the apostasy comes first in the man of lawlessness. Well, once you get your terms down, your translation and your grammar, all of a sudden you realize, well, no, that's not the best argument. That's not the best reading. No, the apostasy and the Antichrist are the first things within the 70th week, again, they do not proceed. Does everyone see that? Now, let's look at a couple more passages, and I'll close here. This makes sense. Now, the reason I say this makes sense, oops, yeah, there we go. Revelation 6, 1 through 2, this is the very beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And if we are correct, you would seem to think that, hey, the Antichrist is going to come to power because that's the first thing within the 70th week. The apostasy leads to the man of lawlessness because the world gives their allegiance to him. Well, lo and behold, the first seal, this is the very first seal, right from the throne room to the things that will take place in the future. This is the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. John says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, this is the first one, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Who's the one who's sitting on the the horse. It's the false Christ. This is the Antichrist. Well, isn't it interesting? The first thing within the 70th week is the apostasy where the world gives their allegiance 
and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, lo and behold, we see that right here. The man of lawlessness is the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Here's Matthew 24, 5. Remember, Jesus talks about all the signs within the 70th week from Matthew 24, verses 4 to 35. Listen to how he begins. He says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Well, wow, that's exactly what Paul said would happen in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Does everyone see that? So, brothers and sisters, then we know that there's no contradiction in the scriptures. Yeah, Brian. The signing of the uh, the peace agreement would fall right there at the beginning as well. And I've heard people say, and you correct me if you have a different view, that that first seal with the rider, with the bow, an arrow is never mentioned. And one of the reasons for that is because at the beginning, it's a bloodless uh, conflict. It's all done through political means and things like that. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I wouldn't read into it um, that far. I mean, just personally, um, maybe there's some evidence for that. I'm just not aware of it if there is. What, what I take it as is there is somewhat of a distinction between this rider who has a bow and Christ who has the sword. Okay, so there's a, this is a counterfeit whoever this is, this Antichrist, because Christ later comes in Revelation 19, and he's on a white horse, but he's faithful and true. And so immediately what John does is he shows you this is a different one. This is the ultimate Christ. So my whole point is I don't read too much into that. The reason why is the very next seal, you have peace taken from the earth. Well, how is peace taken from the earth? Well, I think it's taken from the earth because of warfare. So the way I would think about it is this peace covenant that's made with Israel that lasts the first three and a half years. What that does is it gives some protection to Israel because they're not gone after by the Antichrist and his forces until the last three and a half. Does that make sense? But during the first three and a half years, what happened to Israel in the past now comes upon the Gentile world. And that's why that fourth seal is so important where we see the sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, those four things occurred as God's wrath upon Jerusalem because of their idolatry. Now, how do I know that? Because Ezekiel 14, 19 through 21 tells us that. So what God does is in the 70th week, he does a reversal. Now he pours those same things upon the Gentile world. That's what he's doing. So Israel has the protection, and then at that three-and-a-half-year mark, then it's broken. And that's why they're led out into the wilderness. So let's put something together. Remember, in Hosea chapter 2, God longed for a day that Israel would come to him in the wilderness. And you say, because... To me, the wilderness isn't exactly the greatest place for the Israelites. It's where they failed. But what's being promised in Hosea is one day they're going to get it right. They're going to come to faith in the Messiah. That's really what's being promised, restoration in Hosea 2.14. Wasn't it interesting? John the Baptist meets Israel where? He meets him in the wilderness. But they fail again. They miss the Messiah. So what happens in the last three and a half years, according to Revelation 12, where does God bring them as Antichrist persecutes them? He brings them to the wilderness. And this time, they're going to come to faith. The 40 years they dropped it, now they're going to get it right. He's going to bring them to faith, and as Paul said in Romans 11:26, all Israel will be saved. As it says in Zechariah 12:10, they'll look upon the one whom they pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And they will come to faith in mass, and Christ, of course, after that period, brings the kingdom. That's, that's kind of the picture. So, sorry, long-winded answer, but hopefully that gives a little bit of the the synopsis there. So with that, any comments or questions on that? I hope this makes sense. So now you see that the apostasy comes first prior to the man of lawlessness. That's how he becomes, the man of lawlessness comes to power. But it does not precede the day of the Lord. It is the first thing within the day of the Lord. And again, we saw grammatical constructions from Mark 3.27 and John 7.51 that allude to the first thing within the process rather than preceding the process as examples. That's the better reading of this text. So, and I don't mean to, Andy Woods is a great scholar, love him. We don't have to jump hoops with apostasy. We don't have to argue about whether it's departure. It's a much simpler, you know, maybe more technical, but it's simpler than that. Yep. Yep. So does that make sense? I hope this, I've tried this uh, one time before, and I, sometimes it gets to be kind of a, a lot of... Uh, is Antichrist... Uh, auntie, does it mean against Christ or false Christ, 
Or both. It's kind of both, isn't it? I always said both. Yeah. Sure yeah, I think it's both. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so this is something that when Bob and I came to this in 2007, we were very excited about. And so that's why I wanted to share with you. So if anyone ever says, hey, you know what? The Antichrist is going to come before the day of the Lord. We should expect the Antichrist, as Robert Gundry says in his book, first the Antichrist. Now you know why that that's not a good reading of 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3. Okay? So with that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can look at this text and gain clarity uh, by your power, the power of your Spirit, who inspired the Scriptures. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that the great blessed hope is the fact that your Son can break through the clouds and bring us home. Again, we do pray for this comfort to be upon the Kramitzes as they go to bury Jim. Um, Lord, I do pray for stamina and strength upon them. I also pray for us as a congregation that you'd use these words from your scriptures to build us up in the faith and enable us to persevere. We pray now for our teacher, Bob DeWay, that he would, you'd give him uh, your words, Lord, from the pulpit. You'd help us to understand them, that we'd have ears to hear so that we could persevere to the day you come for us. In Jesus' name, amen.